0: Ever wondered why there's a Christmas at all? Why do we celebrate the birth of a first century Jewish baby? The answer may surprise you. The reason we celebrate Christmas is actually older than Christmas itself. Hundreds of years before the first Christmas, one man, whose nation stood on the brink of destruction, dared to look up and dream of a better future and a new world. As he dreamed, he saw something coming. A day that would change everything. He couldn't have known it at the time, but he saw Christmas. Let us take a look at the original teaser trailer of Christmas.
1: The book of Isaiah. Good morning. Today's scripture comes from Isaiah 49 verses 1 through 16. It reads as follows. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He has made my mouth like a sharpened sword in the shadow of his hand to be hid. He hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said unto me, You are my servant, Israel in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with God. And now, the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring back Jacob to him, and to gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel. I've kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says in the time of my favor. I will answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and I will make you to be a covenant for the people to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances and to say to the captives, come out and to say in darkness, be free. They will free, they will free beside the roads and will find pastures on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat down on them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. I will turn all my mountains into roads and my highways will be raised up. Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and he will have compassion on his afflicted ones. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast? and have no compassion on the child she's born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. Amen.
0: You can applaud for that. You should applaud for that. That was, that was something else. And thank you, Dr. Green. And welcome again to Mosaic. So glad that you're Here this morning you joined us, maybe you're a guest in from out of town or you're uh, joining us on the podcast today and as you can see this month we're looking at the promise of Christmas in the book of Isaiah and we've been moving through the book a bit at a time and it's quite a long and complicated book if you set out to read it this month and uh, it was written by an amazing person named Isaiah and Isaiah was such a fascinating person because Isaiah, you may know, was a prophet and prophets were especially especially special people in Israel uh, in the Old Testament and they had a special purpose and here's what that special purpose was. Uh, Years before any of the prophets ever lived, way back in the book of Exodus, The Israelites had been rescued by God out of slavery in Egypt, and God brought them to a place called Mount Sinai. And at the foot of Mount Sinai, in a kind of a marriage ceremony, the people of Israel swore to God they would be his people, they would love and serve him alone and keep the terms of his covenant. They said, God, you'll be our God and we'll be your people. But as time went on and as the nation prospered and as the nation grew, the nation also forgot God. And as they forgot God, though, time and again, God raised up these special people called prophets and asked them to be covenant watchers. He asked them to watch over the covenant the people had made with God and call the people back to it. And so most of the first part of the book of Isaiah is just at it. Isaiah calling the nation of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah, back to serve God. And proclaiming God's just judgment against them for years and years of covenant breaking. So Isaiah would call, he'd proclaim, he'd warn and rinse and repeat. You've got the first 39 chapters and it kind of goes on and on. But when we get to the second half of the book, Isaiah begins to see something new he begins to describe something different and unique altogether. There's a mysterious and shadowy figure he calls the servant, the servant. And there are a number of special chapters in Isaiah about the servant, and they're now famously called the servant songs. The servant songs and our passage today is one of those servant songs. It's sort of the original Christmas carol, if you will. long before we ever, uh, we ever get the joy to the world, or will come all you faithful, or anything else about you know, sinister reindeer with vendettas against grandparents on Christmas Eve, we've, we've got this. We've got Isaiah 49, where God is singing to and promising to comfort a hurting people What's inside this song? How does it go? Let's look at four parts of this song today. We're going to see the promise, the pain, the comfort. There's a challenge there as well. Let's begin here in number one. And uh, in this song, you may have picked up on it God is promising salvation to the people who were in exile. And the people who were being threatened in their day. Uh, In Isaiah's day, 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel in the north had been conquered by the militant superpower of Assyria. They were known for their cruelty and violence. And now the Assyrians who had conquered the 10 10 tribes in the north were threatening the two tribes in the south called Judah together. Which meant that everybody in Israel from the top to the bottom were at risk from the tyrant, Name Sennacherib. And you've got land laid waste to the north. You've got people threatened and frightened, living in daily fear in the south. And in the middle of this, Isaiah looks up and he begins to dream of something no one could have seen. And God says to him, I'm going to send you a special person, someone called my servant. And this servant is going to deliver your nation. This servant is going to save your nation. He says, My servant servant is going to rescue your nation. And that's how the song starts. But then, as if that weren't enough, look at what God says his servant will also do. He says, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant just to restore the tribes of Jacob and help Israel. He says, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach where? To the ends of of the earth. Oh, this is stunning. Something no Jew could have foreseen coming because not only does God promise salvation soon to the people of Israel, he promises a salvation that's global. He says, not only is my servant going to rescue you, Israel, bring you back to me, he's going to be able to rescue all peoples from all nations. God says, I've got a big multi-ethnic dream for the world. And it's just starting with you, Israel. So God promises them a salvation soon, then a salvation global. But then he promises a salvation ultimate. Look at this. He, God says, look at this. The servant will say to the captives, come out. Those in darkness be free. They'll be free beside the roads, find pasture where every barren hill. They're not going to hunger or thirst. The desert won't get to them. they'll have compassion placed on them they'll be led beside springs of water all the mountains turn into roads my highways will be raised up verse 11 says so look at what God's promising to do through his servant not just to save one people not just to save all peoples he's promising to fix the whole world all of creation through the servant so that the planet itself will look like what it's supposed to No more hunger, no more thirst. There's a salvation soon, a salvation global, a salvation ultimate. God says, I'm bringing it all into the world through my servant, and it's going to start in your nation, Israel. Your pain isn't for nothing. You can count on my promise. You can take it to the bank. When I make a promise, I keep a promise. There's nothing, Israel, that can stop my plan from happening. Every difficult moment you are going through right now, I am turning into something greater than you could ever imagine. And that's the promise. And in the middle of this, in the light of this staggering, unforeseen, almost too good to believe promise, what does the nation of Israel do? Uh Israel here, they turn to God and they shrug. They say effectively, God, that's nice. But what about my pain now? What about my pain now? That's number two. There's pain also. In this song, look at verse 14. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Oh, in other words, God, we've heard a lot of nice things from you. A lot of nice words and promises. Those things sound nice. Your love sounds real nice, God. But right now in my world today... I feel forsaken by you. I hear about your love. Oh, you you, you know, your prophet, preacher man, Isaiah, he's promised us stuff. He's told us you love us, but what about how we feel right now? This is a big deal. It's actually an age-old question. The people here are posing to God, which goes something like this. What good is God's love when bad things are happening all around us? It's a good question to ask. And what's amazing about this question in Isaiah is that it's not coming from skeptics. It's not coming from atheists. It's actually coming from believers in a sense. Theists, God's own people, you know, the church people here are asking, God, what good is your love when bad things are happening all around me? And listen, before we go any further, your answer to that question is will determine your future. If you call yourself a Christian today, your answer to that question will determine whether you make it in the long run with God. And here's why. And I'll quote, a man named Dr. Richard Lovelace, great book called Dynamics of Spiritual Life. He said, quote, it is an item of faith. We do believe that we are children of God, but there is plenty of experience in us against that. The faith that surmounts this evidence and is able to warm itself at the fire of God's love instead of stealing love and self-acceptance from other resources is actually the very root of holiness oh this is a great thought think about this he's saying we all know we all take it for granted if we're Christians that we're children of God that we you know that God loves us but we all feel, we all experience times where it just doesn't feel that way. And he's saying this. He's saying if we don't go directly to the fire of God's love itself, if we don't press through how even we feel, even the evidence that seems to say that God doesn't love us, we will be forced to steal love and a sense of acceptance and worth from something else. In other words, he's saying the world's a cold place and you're gonna have to use something to warm your soul. Oh, it's a brilliant insight he's got. It helps you see all the way to the very bottom of what's inside you. Let me ask you, what is the driving force, the animating principle of what's in your heart today? Is it an overwhelming sense of the nearness and goodness of God to you? If it's not, if it's something else, you'll have to Steal heat from that other thing that's why you, you, you have to you feel like you have to steal heat from some affair in your marriage that's why you steal heat from anger all the time that's why you steal heat or warmth from abusing alcohol or some substance or entertainment that's why we steal heat from feeling good about hating or not being able to stand those people see the human soul was made to be warmed by something and here in Isaiah 49 God is saying I've got fuel for your heart but the people say so what so what what about my pain right now how's God going to answer what's he going to say well he responds with number three with the kind of comfort comfort and it's beautiful and first of all we should note what God doesn't say to a person in pain he doesn't just say hey get over it. (laughs) You should just suck it up, Israel, and move on. No, he does subtly challenge them in a bit, and we'll get to that. But look first at the compassion and the graciousness and the patience and the kindness of God towards people in pain. God, yes, he has promised to do something Mind blowing for his children. His plan for the world was way bigger, way better than any of them could have dreamed up, and they here essentially shrug it off. I mean, this would be like you parents on Christmas morning promising this is your Christmas gift, kids. We're promising to take you guys to Disney World once a month for the rest of your lives. It's amazing. But imagine if they turned to you and said, Well, my sucker fell on the ground. Huh? What about my sucker? I know you, you say you'll take me to Disney World, but what about my loss right now? I mean, what would you say to a child who said that? that you know, I'd, I'd be tempted to blow them off or to say, are you guys all mental? Did you not just hear what I said? I'm like your dad. You know, the guy you can trust. Come on, it's me. And that would be on the nice end of the scale of things I like to say to them, but... God doesn't do that. He doesn't tell his people in pain to suck it up, move on, or just deal with it. And beyond that, what's doubly stunning about this is that something commentators have noted, which is that God even allows himself to be interrupted here. Because in this passage, he's expounding on the future of the world, right? It's coming by the Holy Spirit, through his man Isaiah. Isaiah's mind has got to be, you know, blown right about now. And God allows this little interruption here. This would be like the president of the United States. He's in the middle of giving a State of the Union address, and his little eight-year-old comes out, pulls on his pant leg, and asks him for a quarter, and says, here you go. Would you like something else? See, this is showing you, God's showing you, that even with all on his mind... Even with the balance of the world at stake, he still cares about you. And this is how he puts it. He asks him a question. He asks, can a mother forget the baby at her breast? Have no compassion on the child she has born. Though she may forget, I will not forget you beautiful God he's conjuring up here the closest the purest most intimate that re- relationship that exists the relationship between a mother and a newborn and God says I'm like a mama I'm like a mother who can't forget her baby well we should ask why can't a mother forget well first her body won't let her forget right because when a mother begins to nurse she experiences the sensation of milk coming in and she senses that need to give that to her child and beyond that when she nurses the chemical oxytocin is released which gives her a sense of delight and peace in the moment and beyond that there's the maternal instinct to care for what she has brought into the world. And when she hears her baby's cry, she's moved to what? Love and action and care. And God's saying to them then and us today, I am like that mother toward you. When I see you, God's saying, when I hear you, my whole being is moved to do something about it i can't not have compassion for your cry he's actually saying it it brings him delight and pleasure to move into your life and quiet you when you cry he's saying just like the deepest part of that mother's heart is moved to care for that child god's saying the deepest part of his heart is moved to care for you and as if that weren't good enough Look at what he says next. He says, Though she may forget, I will not forget you. You say, Well, how could a mother forget about her child? Well, not just in the case of someone maybe having a bad mother. That happens, that's a possibility. Sometimes, though, the very best mothers can forget their children through either at the end of their lives going senile, they forget, they lose their mind, or through death. lose their lives see even the very best mothers can and will forget but God is saying here listen though they may forget I will not forget you my love for you is stronger even than death but there's something even deeper here in the metaphor it's a bit unsettling it's kind of insulting but it's just true so I'll ask it in the form of a question what though what does a baby really give a mother or a parent? What does a baby actually do for a parent? Some of you say, well, well my baby looks cute. No, it doesn't. You just think that because it's your baby, right? Yeah. And, and looking cute isn't really doing something, right? No matter what certain celebrities in our culture may say, right? what does a baby actually do for you? And the answer is absolutely nothing, right? And actually, and every parent discovers this at at some point, sometimes... A baby does worse than nothing because all of a sudden that six, seven, eight pound round mound of precious that just moved into your life and house, it's ruined your sleep. It's given you permanent dark circles under your eyes. Your face is not going back to the way it used to be. And they still demand you be a productive adult no matter what. You make all kinds of sacrifices for the child they can never see and never really appreciate. A couple of years ago, for example, I was cleaning out my garage and uh, one of my boys was in there and after I moved some stuff uh, around in the garage and sort of cleared up an opening or a corner that they didn't really go into normally, there appeared in the corner, now, uh, a set of my old golf clubs. Before their eyes, and uh, one of the, the, the brother called in his two other brothers and said, "Look, guys, Dad's got golf clubs." And one of them said, "Dad, I didn't know you had golf clubs." I said, "Yes, I've got golf clubs." Dad used to. Or they asked me, "Did you used to play golf?" And as they all three look up at me, and I said, "Yes, I used to play golf." <laughs> Heavy emphasis on the words "used to," and all of a sudden, then like tumblers falling into place into a lock one of them asked a question of me so perfectly set up for me it was like it was happening in slow motion it was like a christmas the perfect christmas gift better than anything i'll ever get this year i couldn't believe my good fortune this question was like winning the lottery ticket of good questions one of them asked me in a moment in a pause you know snowy moment one of them asked why don't you play anymore?" What happened? And in a moment that will live forever, a moment that was a gift to me, with a highly recriminatory tone. No, that's not it. A highly satisfied tone in my voice. I leaned over their three beaming faces, looking right in the eyes, and I said, What happened? I said, you did. You happened to me. It's a true story. Now, giving up some overly expensive hobby isn't really that big of a deal in the long run, but you know it just kicks off that list, just the beginning of the list. We could all list as parents. See, a child especially, a baby can't do anything for you. A baby cries it makes messes it interferes with your plans a baby's expensive it's totally helpless utterly reliant on the parent for everything and God says that's who you are to me you're like a baby you make messes you give me nothing I give you everything and I'm okay with that you're my child and I love you no matter how you're feeling right now now, some of you may be saying, well, there's, Morgan, there's a lot going on in my life, a lot going on in my heart, in my mind. It's hard for me to believe this today. Let me ask you, then, when a baby cries, when a baby experiences pain, uh, when a baby experiences hunger, when a baby soils itself and cries until it's changed, does that mean the baby is not loved at that moment? Hmm? When a baby feels fear, when a baby feels alone, when a baby feels scared, does that feeling mean the mother does not love it? Hmm? No. What does it mean? Oh, it means the baby's fear, the baby's hunger, that a baby's desire to be warm point to the reality that it has, hear me, a need that only its mother can meet. Yes, it is crying to be changed. It is crying to be fed. But underneath it all, what's it really crying for? It's really crying for its mother. Underneath the cry for the need is the cry to know and experience love. And by God saying, you're like a newborn, Israel, crying to be fed and changed. He's also saying, if you'll listen carefully, my people, you'll recognize within yourself, you'll hear that underneath all your legitimate pain and all your real fear and all your painful loneliness, what you're really crying for is me. He's saying you could have every issue solved. You could never go hungry again. You could never be alone again. But underneath it all, God's saying, without my love, without his love at the deep center of you, you would still try to steal warmth from your circumstances. So he's saying, let your pain, let your tears drive you to me. And that's why he not only gives them that verse 15. It's beautiful about a baby and its mother. He gives them then a final analogy, a final picture. That's so brilliant, stunning, prophetic. No one could have seen it coming. There's also here, number four, there's a challenge. God doesn't just stop here after he promises to never forget them. He actually goes a step further and he says this, verse 16. He says, see, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. So here, God, uh, he's invoking, he's he's turning on its head, a, a cultural sort of customer marker of the day. And in Isaiah's day, it was not uncommon for a servant To perhaps have a master's name tattooed on him to signify who he belonged to. Or in some special cases to signify the servant actually wanted to belong to that master because of the master's care and concern for him. So having a master's name tattooed on a servant wasn't out of the question, but what would never happen, what would have been out of the question was the reverse. It would be inconceivable for a master to tattoo the name of the servant on his body, on his self. I mean, what kind of a master would do that? What kind of a master would walk around telling his friends, showing his family, his fellow business people forever that he Belonged to the servant. And yet, God doesn't just stop there with this. He doesn't just say, He's not just saying, Oh, I've tattooed your name on my body. As incomprehensible as that would have been, he says, I've actually, he says this, I've not just tattooed, I've engraved, I've engraved your name on my hands. Oh, what did it take to not just tattoo but engrave something go to engrave something took a hammer and an iron nail so god is saying here when his people are at their lowest and questioning his love for them god is saying look 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 i am giving you something that can meet the cry beneath the cry that can meet the need beneath the need he's saying i'm gonna take a hammer and a nail and i'm gonna write love into my hands forever and here's the challenge God's saying, if you want to know how much I love you, you've got to look at my hands. About 700 years after Isaiah lived, there was another Israelite, another person in Israel who was afraid in his day as well. This man feared yet another political regime, yet another political machine called the Roman Empire, and this man had had his hopes crushed too. But almost in a way that was worse, this man's name was Thomas. Maybe you've heard of him. Thomas had believed that a certain Jewish rabbi, a man named Jesus of Nazareth, was the servant, was the chosen one who was going to be the answer at long last to the promise of Isaiah 49. Thomas believed Jesus was the servant's song come true. But then Thomas watched the ultimate dream come to an end. In horror, one day, one afternoon, on a Friday. And, but then again, uh, despite all odds, he, he kept hearing a rumor that Jesus was alive again. and That it actually took this horrific pain and death to pay for all God's world to be brought back to him. The rumor said it required Jesus' death for the song to come true. The rumor said that love had actually conquered fear and death. But Thomas said, I don't believe it. That kind of love can't be true. That's a pipe dream. What good are all Jesus' promises to me now? All that I was fighting for and believing for and hoping for came to an end. On one dark day, I saw it with my own eyes. There's no future. with These disciples, this Jesus thing anymore, I won't believe. So what happened next? Uh-huh. Well, in a move no one could have seen coming, Isaiah 49 happened to him. Thomas lived the servant song because a week after he came back to life, Jesus of Nazareth, now with a new body, he walked through a wall, and eyewitnesses said when he walked through the wall, he made a beeline for Thomas, doubting Thomas as he was known, but I, I say it was more like hurting Thomas because all doubt is is something we use to cover the pain uh, of believing that God can't be that good. We use doubt to mask what's really down in there. We wish God, we're really love at his core. We wish God were stronger than evil and hate and fear. But we get evidence that makes it seem like it's not really the case. And so we use doubt to warm our hearts, doubt to warm ourselves at the fire of unbelief, steal our sense of acceptance. And so Jesus goes here to doubting Thomas, hurting Thomas. And he said the same thing to Thomas that God had said to Israel seven centuries before. Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here, Look, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side, stop doubting and believe, and Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And let me tell you what's so amazing about this, about what Jesus did for Thomas because this moment here happened a full week after Jesus' resurrection, a full week after all the disciples had seen and encountered Jesus in the upper room, all of them except for Thomas. Why wasn't Thomas there when the rest of his brothers and sisters were? I mean, why wouldn't you gather with the people you love? and had committed to walking with for years. The reason you wouldn't go is if you just couldn't bring yourself to do it. If your heart was broken to the point that your dream had died. See, Thomas was so crushed by what had happened, he couldn't even bring himself to be with the very brothers and sisters he promised to walk with who were following Jesus. It was too painful. And because he let the pain get the best of him, He missed out on that first incredible night of encountering the risen Jesus. He was too hurt to even go. And because he stayed home, though, while all his friends had seen Jesus, that means also for a full week he had gotten an earful after earful of what they had been telling him. Jesus is alive, they were saying. This song has come true. We've got a hope and a future. And Jesus is with us, even though we don't understand how it's all going to shake out. All we know, Thomas, is that his love is stronger than death. But when you're really hurt, when you're really doubting God's love, when the pain is too great, hear me, the words of your friends won't be enough for you. Their words, my words, aren't heavy enough to float all the way down to to the bottom of a pool of doubt or fear or pain. Their words to Thomas went in one ear and out the other. Oh, that's nice for them, said Thomas. God's promises and love may seem true for them, but I feel forsaken if I don't feel it and see it for myself. I won't believe. And just like with the people in Isaiah 49, Jesus didn't rebuke him. He didn't tell him to get over it. What did he do? No, he walked up to Thomas and he showed him his scars. See, Thomas needed to experience the gospel for himself. The words of his friends weren't enough and they're not enough for you today. If you're here, you're hurting, you're doubting, you're in some kind of pain, you need what Thomas got. You need an experience with God's, Jesus' love. And no, when Thomas got this, no, the Romans didn't magically go away. No, churches weren't magically planted. No, the nation wasn't magically freed. But Thomas's heart was cured. And it was so cured, he was never the same again. The scriptures never report again that he ever doubted Jesus. And church history records Thomas carried the gospel all the way to India... And gave his life there, bringing Jesus' light and love and scars to a people he had never met. And what that means is this. That today God is offering all all of us, all of us infants in a way, all of us Thomas's, something that can help us grow through our pain and heartache, something that can sustain us when we cry, when we feel forsaken and forgotten, and it can do that, but hear me, we've got to choose it for ourselves because he said both to the people in Isaiah and to Thomas in his day, he said, look, behold, look at me. Stop doubting and believe, not in other people. He said, believe in my love. Jesus doesn't rebuke Thomas's heart, but he does lovingly direct it. See this today, church, this is the milk of God's word. This is the milk of it. Jesus loves me. This I know, right? Or what? For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, right? They are weak, but he is strong. See it with me if you know it. Come on. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so.